When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The aspect of our politics has wonderfully changed since you left us. In place of that noble love of liberty and republican government which carried us triumphantly through the war, an Anglican, monarchical, and aristocratical party has sprung up, whose avowed object is to draw over us the substance, as they have already done, the forms of the British government. The main body of our citizens, however, remain true to the republican principles. The whole landed interest is with them, and so is a great mass of talents. Against us are the executive, the judiciary, two out of three branches of the legislature, all of the officers of the government, all who want to be officers, all timid men who prefer the calm of despotism to the boisterous sea of liberty, British merchants and Americans trading on British capitals, speculators and holders in the banks and public funds, a contrivance invented for the purposes of corruption and for assimilating us in all things, to the rotten as well as the sound parts of the British model. It would give you a fever were I to name to you the apostates who have gone over these heresies, men who are Samsons in the field and Solomons in the council, but who have had their heads shorn by the harlot England. In short, we are likely to preserve the liberty we have obtained only by unremitting labors and perils, but we shall preserve them, and our massive weight and wealth on the good side is so great as to leave no danger that force will ever be attempted against us. This letter, written on April 24, 1796, by former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson to his friend and former neighbor Philip Mazai, would not only become one of the most infamous examples of partisan politics in the early republic, but was also representative of a line in the sand being drawn to divide Washington and the Federalists from Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans as the election of 1796 drew ever closer. Welcome, dear listener, to the twilight of the Washington presidency. This is the Presidencies of the United States, and I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get started, I'd like to thank René Brusson, also known as Reen, for providing the opening quote. If you're looking to explore some of the less trodden paths of history, then you should head over to Reen's podcast, Reen's Time Machine. He did a great series on the history of Carthage and is now a few episodes into the history of the Comanches. Once you're done with this episode, check it out at Reens, that's R-E-E-N-S, Time Machine, all one word, dot com. Or look for Reens Time Machine on iTunes and anywhere else that fine podcasts can be found. I'd also like to thank our erstwhile audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Though behind the scenes, he plays a key role in seeing us through to the end of the Washington presidency. Should you, like me, need assistance with your podcast or next audio editing project, drop him a line at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As the United States entered 1796, Washington was at least seeing resolution to one of the major issues of the prior year. As discussed in previous episodes, the president had experienced much frustration at trying to fill vacant government positions over the latter half of 1795. He had managed to get Charles Lee confirmed as Attorney General, but Timothy Pickering, the Secretary of War, was also serving as Acting Secretary of State, and the Senate had rejected his recess appointment of John Rutledge as Chief Justice. Something had to be done, 
and he had to work in order of priority. First up was the State Department. After having offered it to numerous folks with no takers, Washington decided at some point in November that since Timothy Pickering was already acting as the Secretary of State, maybe he should just go ahead and take the position on a permanent basis. Now, whether this was indicative of just how exasperated Washington was at the situation, or indicative of his lack of confidence in Pickering, I'll let you be the judge. But according to Pickering, when Washington offered him the position, he started out by detailing to him all of the other people who he had asked before Pickering and who had rejected the post. Being a member of the cabinet, Pickering had been aware of some of the offers, but apparently there were others that had been kept from him. After listing five other people that Washington would have preferred to have had in the position, he then offered it to Pickering. I know, the president will not be winning the Salesman of the Year Award for 1795. Naturally, Pickering also declined. However, the president was persistent. He then called in backup and had Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott speak to him. Following the 1-2 sales pitch, Pickering upgraded his position from no way to undecided. Pickering admitted afterwards in a letter to Hamilton that, quote, I still wish the office in abler hands. However, what got him was when he went to one of Martha Washington's Friday evening gatherings and, quote, found the president and Mr. Walcott in the antechamber the president's countenance manifestly uneasy. He got Walcott to the side and was told that Washington's distress was over not knowing whether or not Pickering would accept the State Department. Seeing the president in distress, Pickering decided to finally bite the bullet. He went to Washington and told him that, quote, I would serve in one office or the other as the public good should require. If the president could find someone better for state, he would step aside or if he could more easily fill the post at the War Department, he'd move over to state. Pickering was willing to abide by the president's will either way. With Pickering finally a lock, Washington was able to turn his attention to filling the other two posts. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Washington would write to James McHenry on January 20, 1796, offering him the position of Secretary of War and asserting that, quote, it would now give me sincere pleasure if you would fill the position. Now, as we discussed in episode 1.30, McHenry had poor health and wasn't well known outside of Maryland. However, he did have the advantage of being a Southerner, so he and Charles Lee of Virginia would balance the Northerners Pickering and Walcott geographically. Washington also had a great respect for McHenry, and he was seen as being an honorable character. As a sign of Washington's respect for him, he even indicated a greater level of respect for McHenry than he was showing to his present cabinet members by indicating his willingness to appoint his fellow Marylander, Samuel Chase, for the Supreme Court seat that had been vacated by John Blair Jr. on October 25th of the prior year. Chase was McHenry's recommended candidate, and you may recognize the name as Chase was one of the litany of names that Washington went through as possibilities for Attorney General in episode 1.30. McHenry took the weekend to think about it, as taking the position would bring its share of complications. McHenry would have to sell his family-owned mercantile house 
as well as his interest in another mercantile house to avoid a conflict of interest. Also, he and his wife Peggy would have to deal with the slavery issue that was posed by a move to Philadelphia. Like the Washingtons, the McHenrys were slave owners. Unlike the Washingtons, they only enslaved five individuals. Five too many, to be sure. But still, should McHenry accept, they would have to decide what to do with them. McHenry, in fact, did accept, which we'll get back to in a minute. And Peggy took the lead in deciding what to do with the five. She initially resisted the move, but as it became clear that it was unavoidable, she also had to face the fact that the decision of what to do with the five individuals whose fate she held in her hands was inescapable. Unlike the enslaved people of Mount Vernon, the five enslaved in the McHenry household in Baltimore were close enough to Pennsylvania to have heard about the Emancipation Law, and they sought to force Peggy's hand. Now, Peggy could have sold all five, but she didn't. Instead, she agreed to free an older female named Rachel and take three others, two women and a man, to Philadelphia as indentured servants to serve the McHenrys for a length of time, after which they would be free and remain in Philadelphia. The fate of the fifth person enslaved by the McHenrys is unknown. This settlement was not as benevolent as it might seem, however. For two of the three traveling to Philadelphia, they would have to be separated from their families with the knowledge that they might never see them again. A horrible choice for anyone to ever have to make. Anyway, I digress. It looked like Washington was set to fill two more vacant positions in the federal government, and there was only one remaining, that of Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Perhaps, instead of looking outside of the court, he should instead look at the four men remaining on that court. Washington would ultimately decide to nominate Associate Justice William Cushing to become the new Chief Justice, and the Senate confirmed Washington's nomination. There was only one problem. Apparently, they didn't ask Cushing first, as he declined the nomination on January 26th, citing ill health, but then continuing to serve at his position as Associate Justice for another 14 years. I'm picturing someone seeing him around Philadelphia and saying, Ah, Justice Cushing, I thought you were near death and couldn't serve as Chief Justice. Oh yeah, that, well, uh, I got better. Thus, though James McHenry and Samuel Chase would both assume their new roles in February, the position of Chief Justice was still vacant. What was a president to do? Well, if he couldn't beat him, he would join him or rather, have one of them join the court, them being the U.S. Senate. Since the Senate rejected his previous recess appointment, Washington decided to appoint a senator to the post. Not just any senator, though. Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut was from a prominent family and had a strong reputation as a lawyer. His reputation was so prestigious that he had been the main author of the Judiciary Act of 1789 that had organized the federal judiciary in the form that it was in at the time. This appointment was met with widespread approval, with Representative Jeremiah Smith of New Hampshire asserting that, quote, no appointment in the U.S. has been more wise or judicious than this. The vice president looked at Ellsworth with a more critical eye, though, asserting that he had, quote, the stiffness of Connecticut though his air and gait are not elegant, though he cannot enter a room nor retire from it with the ease and grace of a courtier. Yet his understanding is as sound, his information as good, and his heart as steady as any man can boast. It can be imagined, though, that it was felt that his formal manner was rather appropriate for heading the highest court in the land, and the Senate in short order confirmed Ellsworth by a vote of 21 to 1, 
with the third Chief Justice taking his oath of office on March 8, 1796. Now that his personnel problems were at long last at an end, the president could turn his full attention to the governance of the country, right? Naturally, that's what Washington wanted, but it just wasn't happening. The partisan battle lines were being drawn in anticipation of the upcoming elections, and the tensions threatened to erupt as the battle over the Jay Treaty entered its next phase. What's that, you say? The Senate ratified the Jay Treaty, so that's that, right? Well, not quite. Though the Senate is the only House of Congress that can ratify or reject treaties, at times, treaties require federal funds to enact. In the case of the Jay Treaty, it was to the sum of $90,000 to establish three commissions. Appropriation bills can only originate in the House. Thus, as Congress reconvened in December 1795, the debate over the Jay Treaty moved into the other congressional chamber. Democratic Republicans were well aware of the challenges that they were facing in opposing the pro-administration Federalists. As the former Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson wrote to Representative James Madison in September 1795, quote, Hamilton is really a colossus to the anti-Republican Party. Without numbers, he is an host within himself. We have had only middling performances to oppose to him. In truth, when he comes forward, there is nobody but yourself who can meet him. Though Jefferson urged Madison, quote, For God's sake, take up your pen. In response to the slew of essays that Hamilton had released in the papers in defense of the treaty, and which had continued on into the new year, whether out of indecisiveness or a sense of national duty, or an understanding that the real battle would be in the House rather than in print, Madison demurred. As the new congressional session got underway, Madison, who had been the de facto party leader of the Democratic-Republican faction since the first Congress, would find himself joined by a new ally, someone who we haven't heard from in a little bit. Pennsylvania had elected Albert Gallatin as one of its representatives to the U.S. House of Representatives, and Madison and Gallatin would become quick allies. By January, Madison wrote to Jefferson that, quote, Gallatin is a real treasure in the Department of Legislation. He is sound in his principles, accurate in his calculations, and indefatigable in his researches. As much as Hamilton was skilled in the printed word and in laying out arguments, his meticulous eye for detail was important, and Madison had quickly identified in Gallatin a skill that could match that of Hamilton. However, though he would find an ally in Gallatin, other new Democratic-Republican members of the House were not quite so willing to defer to Madison's leadership. Edward Livingston had just been elected from New York, and he would write on December 20, 1795, that, quote, Madison's great fault as a politician appears to me a want of decision and a disposition to magnify his adversary's strength. A habit of considering the objections to his own plans so long and so frequently that they acquire a real weight and influence his conduct. He never determines to act until he is absolutely forced by the pressure of affairs and then regrets that he has neglected some better opportunity. Livingston determined in the matter of the Jay Treaty that action was called for, and thus he lay ready to strike when the matter was brought before the House. In the meantime, House Democratic Republicans started to flex their muscle. It had been a tradition since the start of the government under the Constitution for Congress to adjourn to call on the president and wish him well on his birthday. 
When the date rolled around in February 1796, however, House Republicans ensured that the motion was voted down by a vote of 50 against to 38 for. The kid gloves were off, and the old rules were not in play. Washington, seeming to think that the matter was done and settled, and that the House appropriation was merely a formality, proclaimed the Jay Treaty to be in effect on March 1st without making a request to the House for the appropriation. Livingston, without seeking Madison's permission, took to the floor of the House the next day and introduced a resolution which called for Washington to, quote, turn over copies of John Jay's diplomatic instructions and other correspondence and documents related to the negotiations. The battle was on. The next couple of weeks would see impassioned speeches on both sides. Federalists would insist, quote, that the President and Senate alone had the power to make and approve treaties, and that the House had no authority to interfere, as it would violate the separation of powers. While Democratic Republicans would insist that they would, quote, refuse to appropriate funds to establish the three commissions called for by the treaty until they had examined each step in the negotiations. Some representatives who had been on the fence between the two factions, like Samuel Smith of Maryland, felt compelled due to the passion of the argument to choose one side or the other. Smith, on March 17th, announced himself in support of the Democratic-Republican argument, though he still held out from firmly committing to voting against the appropriations. On the 24th, the vote was taken on Livingston's resolution, and it was passed by the House by a vote of 62 to 37. While it does seem that Washington consulted with his cabinet on the matter, as well as the new Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth, most of the emphasis in histories of this time are on the influence of Hamilton, who had already been thinking through a response for the administration weeks before Livingston's resolution passed. As early as March 7th, he had written to Washington with a draft message to Congress refusing to abide by the resolution should it pass. In the same letter, Hamilton postulated that, quote, it does not occur that the view of the papers asked for can be relative to any purpose of the competency of the House of Representatives but that of an impeachment. Washington would write back to Hamilton on the 22nd with a letter which it seems based on Hamilton's response that he suggested some middle ground, possibly involving only communicating the instructions to Jay to the Senate. But Hamilton insisted that he could not give in and by the 28th, goes so far as to suggest that Washington not send a reply to the House resolution at all. Washington would not go that far, but rather, he would take Hamilton's advice of the 7th and sent a detailed message to the House on March 30th, refusing their request to hand over the documents and invoking what has come to be known over the years as executive privilege. He explains in his message that, quote, the nature of foreign negotiations requires caution and their success must often depend on secrecy. And even when brought to a conclusion, a full disclosure of all the measures, demands, or eventual concessions which may have been proposed or contemplated would be extremely impolitic, for this might have a pernicious influence on future negotiations or produce immediate inconveniences, perhaps danger and mischief, in relation to other powers. While conveying a respect for the other branches of government, Washington pulled the I was a member of the Constitutional Convention card to give his interpretation extra authority and concluded that, quote, it is essential to the due administration of the government that the boundaries fixed by the Constitution between the different departments should be preserved. Hence, 
why the executive cannot give in to the request of a House of Congress to get involved in a matter to which it is not constitutionally prescribed to be involved. As you can imagine, dear listener, this went over like a lead balloon. Neither the Democratic Republicans, nor indeed some Federalists, had thought that Washington would go as far as a complete refusal of the request. Over the years, he had typically tried to meet in the middle and work out a compromise. However, that had been when he had been advised by individuals with differing political viewpoints. Now, though, he had put his foot down, and the debate in the House raged once more. It was at this point that the Democratic Republicans moved closer towards increased organization as, on April 2nd, they held their first formal caucus. Though the party caucus would later become more associated with determining presidential candidates, this one was more focused on determining a strategy on how to bring down the Jay Treaty. They decided to join together in a united front and vote against the appropriation as well as for new resolutions, quote, defending the right of the House to pass upon treaties and to call for executive papers without detailing reasons for so doing. As the president in his message had cited his constitutional knowledge as a member of the Constitutional Convention, the Democratic Republicans now turned to the leader in their ranks who could be said to have an equal, if not greater knowledge than Washington of the intentions of the framers of the Constitution, James Madison. Madison, however, was operating under a handicap. Though his detailed notes on the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention are referenced even today by constitutional scholars and in legal decisions and provide a wealth of knowledge about the intentions behind the provisions of the Constitution, at that point, they were not in Madison's possession. Instead, he had left them with Jefferson at Monticello. Thus, quote, he therefore evaded the questions hurled at him about the convention debates for fear of misspeaking before Jefferson could send information about what was contained in his notes of the proceedings. While he did deliver speeches on April 14th and 15th, reiterating his points of contention with the Jay Treaty, it was Albert Gallatin's speech that Democratic Republicans pinned their hopes on putting the nail in the coffin of the treaty. Federalists were growing ever more concerned that the appropriation bill would be voted down, and in addition to delivering speeches, countering the opposition's arguments in the House, also rallied the business community to put external pressure on any possible swing votes. Being from Maryland, Secretary of War James McHenry sent word back to associates in Maryland, calling for them to hold meetings and to send petitions to the wavering representative Samuel Smith, who, while expressing his opposition to the treaty, had not confirmed whether he would vote for or against the appropriation bill. The pressure began to eat away at the Democratic-Republican votes, including Smith, who, in a lengthy speech in the House on April 22nd, while continuing to express his disapproval of the treaty, quote, declared his intention to vote for the appropriation bill because the treaty was not unconstitutional and failure to approve it would cause the British to renew their seizures and condemnations of American vessels. Finally, on April 28th, the Federalists would deliver their coup de grace when it was announced that Representative Fisher Ames would speak. Ames had been a prominent leader in the House for the last few sessions, but was now suffering from a recurring ailment that would often leave him weak and had delayed his arriving for the present session of Congress. As word went out that Ames was set to speak, figures from all parts of the government, including Vice President Adams and Supreme Court Justice James Iredale, would make their way to the House chamber to witness what would come to be Ames's most famous speech. 
and the Federalist representative from Massachusetts would rally his strength to deliver what an observer would later recall was, quote, a most masterful display in which he revived and excited the highest state of feeling. Ames' speech would focus on two points. One, that the opposition was unjustly stirring up a, quote, jealous and repulsive fear for the rights of the House in order to claim power that didn't belong to the House to begin with. And two, that breaking the treaty would have dire consequences for the nation. Quote, on the seacoast, vast losses uncompensated. On the frontier, Indian War. Everywhere, discontent, national discord and abasement. Will our government be able to temper and restrain the turbulence of such a crisis? Considering the arguments that the opposition had made against the treaty, Ames asserted that, quote, its stipulations for the Western Post being vacated by the British for indemnity and for a due observance of our neutral rights has justly raised the character of the nation. To back away from it now would be, quote, to leap into the abyss. The treaty had been ratified by the body responsible for doing so, and, quote, a government whose origin is right cannot, upon solemn debate, make its opinion to be faithless. Voting against the appropriation and thus invalidating the treaty would make the government as impotent as it had been under the Articles of Confederation. No, Ames argued that for the good of the nation, the appropriation and the ratified treaty must go forward. After more than an hour, Ames sat down, and the work was done. On May 1st, the House, by a vote of 51 to 48, with Representative Samuel Smith, as well as others typically more aligned with the Democratic-Republicans, voting with Federalists to approve the appropriation bill. As Federalists declared victory and felt strengthened going into the upcoming election season, Democratic-Republicans, and in particular Representative Madison, were downtrodden. Once the most influential person in the new government, Madison had lost his influence with the chief executive, was waning in influence in the House, and could hardly even keep discipline within the opposition forces. There was much for the man from Virginia to think about as the congressional session wrapped up and he prepared to return back to Montpelier. More good tidings were coming Washington's way as March gave way to April. His newfound boldness did not stop at standing up to the opposition in the House. After opting to not rock the boat for the last few months, Washington wrote to Hamilton on February 13th, asserting that, quote, my mind being continually uneasy on account of young Fayette, i.e. his namesake, George Washington Lafayette, I cannot but wish, if this letter should reach you in time, and no reason stronger than what have occurred against it, that you would request him and his tutor to come on to this place on a visit. The French and the Francophiles and anyone else who didn't like it could be darned. George Washington would bring his dear friend's son into his household. The two were finally acquainted in early April, and bringing the young Lafayette into his household seemed to have done a world of good for both. An observer noted that, quote, a few jokes passed between the president and young Lafayette, whom he treats more as his child than as a guest. Washington himself would pronounce his godson, quote, a modest, sensible, and deserving youth. Though I imagine that Washington would never wish to supplant his father in the young man's heart, he was determined to do all he could to support him until Lafayette himself could resume his role of father. Little could any of them have known that day was coming sooner than they thought. Though I must leave you now, I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I like to call Race to the Finish Line. 
where we explore many changing roles occurring in late 1796 and early 1797. Thanks so much again to Reen of Reen's Time Machine for doing our intro quote for this episode. And special thanks again to Andrew for his audio editing work for the podcast. If you have any questions or comments, there are a few ways you can reach me. I'm available via email at presidencyspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, but I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can also find information on how to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or other methods, so that you can be sure not to miss a single episode. If you'd like to tell others how much you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it on iTunes, Podchaser, or any of the other podcast systems that have ratings available. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to listen. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.